Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. The Edmiston Center focuses on Christian endurance in the midst of competing cultural narratives. Mrs. K.A. Ellis, its director, joined Dr. Keith Plummer to talk about how she came to Christ and the people and things God used to form her heart for Christians experiencing persecution around the world. They discuss the varying forms persecution takes and what similarities underlie them. They also talk about what Christians in the West can learn from persecuted believers around the world and throughout time who have persevered in this face of severe opposition, as well as how American Christians conquer cultural anxiety. She and Keith also discuss what led her to jump ship from Twitter. So if you're interested in getting a broader view of what God is doing in the lives of Christians around the world, or want resources to equip your church or your family to pray for persecuted and marginalized believers globally, stay tuned. My guest today is someone I've been wanting to talk with for quite a while. And though this is the first time we've actually spoken in real time, it feels like we know each other to some extent because of our online interactions. She is Mrs. Karen A. Ellis, a.k.a. K.A. Ellis, Director of the Edmiston Center for the Study of the Bible and Ethnicity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. She holds a Master of Arts in Religion from Westminster Seminary and a Master of Fine Arts from the Yale School of Drama, and is a Ph.D. candidate in World Christianity and Ethics at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in England. Karen, I am so happy that you accepted the invitation to talk with me. Welcome. Oh, the pleasure is mine. It's nice to finally get a chance to sit down and and just kind of chat with you about, we talk about so many things online together and so many bizarre things and yet (laughs) yet relevant. Oh yeah, I'm going to say something about that. And it's, it's just such a treat to finally have a chance to sit down and talk with you voice to voice. It is. And this is far better than tweets. <laughs> it is. This we'll is be able way. to go more in depth than with tweets, too. Mm-hmm. Well, can you begin by telling us first, before we get into some of the, your work with the Edmiston Center, what were some of the, the events? Who were some of the people that uh, God brought into your life who were instrumental in bringing you to, to faith in Christ? I grew up in church, uh, mm. but I was not a believer. And uh, I was I was actually the church organist. Wow. Uh, and I know, right? <laughs> so I was the organist. I directed the choir. I was in college. That's how I put my I paid my way through college, uh, one of the ways. And I had been around, you know, the word and around the songs of God and the, the word buried in hymns and whatnot. And but it I really didn't understand what it meant to truly follow Christ, you know, the exchanged life. I didn't understand any of that until I was about 25. But leading up to the time I was 25, there were a number of significant people in my life. I used to call them my guideposts without even knowing that guidepost was the name of a magazine. Like, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about Christianity. I just, I didn't know the book of John from the book of First John. I didn't know anything. And uh, so there were several people. One of them was uh, Deborah Barrett. She's actually gone home to be with the Lord now, but she was my social studies teacher in the Baltimore City Public School. Mm. And I used to get sent to the principal's office for bad behavior all the time. And uh, there was this, uh, the way the office was set up, it was like a fishbowl. So if you got sent to the principal's office and classes were changing, you were sitting there and all the students were walking by like, mm, yeah, there she is again, right? You know, it was all girls' school, which made it like 100 times worse. And so <laughs> there she is again in the principal's office waiting to be seen. And uh, while I was sitting there in my shame, Deborah Barrett, my social studies teacher, would come and sit with me. Mm. And she would bring her Bible. And she would sit with me uh, while I was in the fishbowl. And she would just talk to me about, you know, she asked me, where do you go to church? And I told her where I was going to church. So what do you do? What, what do your parents, you know, you know, what do your parents think about you going to the principal's office so much? And then she would talk to me about Jesus. Um, she would talk to me about a genuine life in the faith. And, uh, of course, it was about 10 years later before the penny dropped. Uh, but she was probably one of the most significant people. Now, you got to understand, a public school teacher— we're talking about the mid-80s, 
early to mid-80s, a public school teacher having the courage to come and talk to a student about their faith, she Mm -hmm. still could at that point. Right. I don't think you can do that in public schools anymore. A lot has changed. I don't think you have that freedom anymore. Another person who was, uh, I was uh, working at a hotel. So these were my guideposts, right? I was working at a hotel in uh, Baltimore, uh, the Cross Keys Inn. It's not, I don't think it's the Cross Keys Inn anymore. And we used to host all the baseball teams. Back in the 80s, the Yankees were the bad boys, mm-hmm. right, of, of baseball. Then there were Mariners. Like when the Mariners, Seattle Mariners came through, they came through with little halos on, right? Because they were all good. Like they'd be sitting in the lobby reading their books, you know? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, there was one man on the Mariners team uh, who was a Christian, and his name was Harold Reynolds. And he walked in the door one day, and I was, he didn't know me from a can of paint. He walked in the door one day and he turned around and he looked straight at me. He came over to me and uh, we started talking. And I, I thought he was, you know, I thought he was looking at me because, you know, eh, it's the 80s. Or, you know, I thought it was like, cute, you know. And he said, well, here's some tickets to the game and um, let's let's get together and talk afterwards. And I was like, mm, okay. So I go to the game, which I love baseball, big baseball mm. fan. Go to the game. And uh, we go out to, uh, to, to eat afterwards. And he tells me about Jesus. Mm. And... It's still like, you know, still like hitting <laughs> hitting a wall in terms of my heart, but he's watering seeds that Deborah Barrett planted. There's another young lady in um, college, Kelly Fitzgerald, who I just reconnected with after all these years in the last week. She just texted me uh, oh. yesterday, and I was like, I'm so glad we found each other. I made it. I'd be able to tell her, <laughs> I, I know him. I know Jesus. Oh, Who that girl witnessed to me hard in college. So these were all these signposts, and most of them were sort of people who were planting, watering. And then one day, I was 25, 25 years old at Yale, sitting in the African and African American Studies building, and it was a Easter service. It's April April nineteen ninety three. And there was this beautiful brother up at the front who gave the gospel, and I had been hearing it my whole life, but that was the first time I heard it heard it. Mm-hmm. And the penny dropped, and I crawled across, because um, I was at the Yale School of Drama, so I crawled across a bunch of famous people that you would know today, because <laughs> I had invited to church, ironically. <laughs> and so I crawled across all of them and went down the aisle. But I think I believed before that. I think mm-hmm. I believed a little bit, but that was just kind of like the, the Lord's thumbprint on, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now all these other people know you believe. And that's what started, really started kind of a life of adventure in the faith. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's been hard times. It's been good times. It's been ups and downs, but I wouldn't trade it. I mm-hmm. wouldn't trade it for anything. Wow. Wouldn't go back, that's for sure. It's beautiful to hear stories of how God uses people as links in the chain that lead mm-hmm. to Christ. Yeah. That yeah. is that is great. Yeah, I'm a great believer in in uh, you know, just sort of drive-by evangelism, you know. <laughs> Cuz that's how I came to know the Lord. You know, it's like boom, there's one other one. Boom, there's another one. Boom. And they they seem in, unrelated, you know. Yes. They would all and there's something that every single one of them said to me was that God was had been after me since I was a little girl. Since I was that little girl sitting in, you know, playing that old clunky piano in the church basement for the Sunday school, you know, becoming the church organist, that God had had his eyes on me since then. Mm. And every single one of them said that. And, and there's encouragement in your story for, the, for those of us who share the gospel with people and we don't see mm-hmm. the fruit in that encounter. Mm-hmm. Because the, the people on the front end of that chain didn't see it. That's right. But they were, they were part of it. They were just faithful. Yes. They were just being faithful and giving out of the overflow of what God had given them. I mean, it's mm-hmm. uh, some people, you know, it's like, why, when we, when we look askance at other faiths or other worldviews and we're like, man, they're, they're always talking about it. They're proselytizing. They're, 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 and I'm like, we're supposed to be doing <laughs> We're supposed to be doing that too. If you really found something that set you free, mm-hmm. wouldn't you want to tell other people about them? Mm. Yes. Well, as we're going to discuss, you have a particularly tender heart and a burden for brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing various forms of persecution for the faith. Any particular events or people there that you can trace? 
that particular sensitivity to? How did the Lord use various things in order to form that in you? So I I had a career in theater uh, before I went into theology. And I must have been about six months, maybe four or five months old in the Lord um, when I went to Eastern Europe just after the Iron Curtain fell. And um, I didn't know anything about the much about the history. I knew very surface things about the history of Christianity under the Soviet Union. I didn't know much at all. And I went with, you know, very secular people, you know, there it was just a theater job. And it turned out to be so much more of a foundational experience for my work with the underground church and the persecuted in that being in Eastern Europe after the Iron Curtain fell was like watching people come out of, um, you know, caves into the light, mm. blinking, like and in terms of their religious freedom and rediscovering who they were as a, in evangelical theology, evangelical uh, Christianity has started to flourish again in the public square. So watching that happen, I didn't know what I was looking at at the time. But while I was there, into my hands fell a book by a man named Richard Wormbrand mm-hmm. called Tortured for Christ. And I read that and I came away with sort of a romantic understanding of, of the, the, the awful uh, and yet blessed life of living under persecution. But that was sort of what started my journey mm-hmm. uh, of being curious about what life was like under the Soviet Union. And then I found of the former Soviet Union. And then I found other you know, works by biographies by people who had also, you know, people who had um, lived in Vietnam, people who had uh, been incarcerated in in uh, numerous other countries. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, this is a this is a whole thing. And so I kind of worked backwards from their biographies into the Bible, mm-hmm. my early understanding of the Bible to understand that, oh, this is normal Christian life. Mm. This is New Testament living. And the place where I was living for so for God's purposes, for purposes He alone understands, uh, we were not having that experience, and so uh, so I started to look for the value of both experiences. That's that's kind of really it was that tortured for Christ and his wife's book, uh, the pastor's wife, the preacher's wife, the pastor's wife by Sabina Wormbrand that sort of just launched me into uh, curiosity hmm. about um, about that world. And and you were a babe in Christ when this began. I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, everybody around me was reading Heinzfeld in high places, and I was reading <laughs> Tortured for Christ, you know? <laughs> so this is my life. Well, you know, I've, I've been reading a, a book edited by someone named Nick Needham. It's called Daily Readings, the Early Church Fathers. Every month is devoted to excerpts of the writings of a, a particular church father. So for this month, Cyprian of Carthage Mm. is the church father. And when I opened it to this morning's date, I read an excerpt from one of his works called On the Vanity of Idols. And there was a paragraph that I wanted to share with you because as I read it, I thought, this is so providential that I would Mm -hmm. come across this as I'm going to have this conversation with Karen. This (laughs) is the paragraph. So that the truth of faith might be all the more solid and acknowledging Christ might not simply be some pleasant thing. Believers are put to the proof by tortures, crucifixions, and many kinds of mistreatment. Pain, the acid test of truth, comes upon them. The outcome is that Christ, the Son of God, the object of trust given to human beings for their life, is affirmed not merely by the mouth's trumpeting, but by the witness of suffering. Mm-hmm. And that is so much related to the work that you're doing with the Edmiston Center. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you to share with us, as, as the director of the Edmiston Center for the Study of the Bible and Ethnicity, please tell us something about the people from whom the center gets its name, and then a little about what the center strives to do. Right. First off, that passage uh, just rings for me. Um, I, had I will a great send it con- to you. I would love to have it. I, I, I had a great conversation uh, at the at the uh, Edmiston Center. We host public lectures, and we had uh, Hannah Nation from the Center for House Church Theology come and talk about the work of uh, Pastor Wang Yi, who's mm-hmm. incarcerated. And the first question I asked her in the Q&A was, 
is persecution a blessing or a curse? Hmm. To which she said, uh, probably Pastor Wang Yi would say it's both. It's both. Hmm. Uh, it's part of the curse of this world, but God redeems it and uses it for his purpose to, to sanctify the believer and also to, um, to purify the culture around us. Because, you know, as we bear witness to the culture around us, um, it's, it's, we bring both an indictment hmm. and, and an invitation, you know. Hmm. So the Edmiston Center is named after Alonzo and Althea Edmiston. And they were, uh, so this is, this is kind of where my personal history comes in to intersect with the, uh, the persecuted church. When I was in Eastern Europe, I started to realize, and I started reading uh, Wormbrand and others, um, Brother Andrew, brother others who were who had experienced uh, anti-Christian hostility in the in the 20th century. I started to notice that there were a lot of commonalities between their experience and what my ancestors, as African American, had experienced as well, especially in the um, the proto-church era for the African American church. You know, when we were meeting in hush harbors and it was illegal to gather, and um, and you know, and how how it, there are many, many testimonies of people who were able to sort of untangle their ethnic persecution from their religious persecution, where they knew that they were being punished because they wanted to worship on the Sabbath. Hmm. And that was very different from being punished because you're you're African and enslaved, right? So the, uh, working out of that, uh, I found the Alonzo and Althea Edmiston family, the Edmiston family, they were one generation uh, out of slavery, so their their parents were enslaved people. They were emancipated and uh, did quite well. The parents did quite well um, post-slavery in the Reconstruction period. And uh, Althea was sent to Fisk University, and Alonzo came through Stillman, the preacher's the preachers mm-hmm. college. And uh, she went on. She became a Christian. And uh, decided to become a missionary, felt called to be a missionary and fulfilled that call by going to Congo, uh, the free state of Congo at that point, and um, met him in Congo. Now, I don't know why they didn't meet each other in Alabama, (laughs) far from Providence, God said no. She was a part of a a massive um, uh, relocation, uh, we would call them today internally displaced people, but a massive relocation because of threats against Westerners um, in the Congo and also um, village people as well, indigenous folks, uh, women and children. So she met him on the march to safety in Congo. Mm. And uh, they met and they married. And we're talking uh, early turn of the century. And they joined a team uh, that was the first African-led mission team from the U.S., part of the PCUS, Presbyterian Church, United States at that point. And uh, they did an amazing work in Congo. It was the shepherd team, which included uh, Mariah Fearing, who was ransoming children from uh, orphans from the the rubber trade and the Arab slave trade, and also uh, from King Leopold II, who was horrifically violent um, Mm. against uh, the Congolese. If you ever want to take a look at just his history, his legacy is insane. It was a he massacred people. Uh, the rubber trade was punishing people for not working uh, well or properly to produce enough rubber for our tires. It's interesting how um, Congo, even today, is sort of at a flashpoint of technology and the development of technology in terms of the cobalt that we get for our phones and our laptops and our electric mm-hmm. cars and how people are um, treated poorly, um, unethically, and in some cases exploited for the mining of the cobalt for those to run those things. So anyways, for back then for them, it was rubber tires. Hmm. And so the rubber trade just had uh, a lot of horrific uh, anti-human abuses uh, and human rights abuses. And um, so it was very common to see people with lopped off body parts um, as threats, you know, work harder without hmm. a hand. And so the Edmistons were a, a part of uh, ransoming children uh, speaking out publicly against human rights abuses, which came at great cost for them as foreign missionaries. And um, they stayed there. They did uh, an amazing faith work project where they um, helped people connect their understanding of Christ with the Bible uh, and how to work well, um, how to start their own projects, their own economic projects. It's, it's, they're just a fascinating couple to study and, and unsung and unheard. So they carry really the ethos of the Edmiston Center of whole, holistic Christian life 
under anti-Christian hostility in places where Christianity is hard. Hmm. So the center after them. Great. And and what does the center do? What are the opportunities that are available? What are your what is your mission? What would you like to accomplish through the the center? Well, our mission is to think theologically about life under anti-Christian hostility. So there's kind of a hole in terms of uh, the spade work that's been done theologically around Christian endurance Mm -hmm. under hostility. There's a lot that's been written. A lot of ink has been spilled about Christian suffering that we need about Mm -hmm. suffering. A lot of has been, uh, a lot of ink has been spilled around the ideas of um, uh, persecution, but not a whole lot of spade work around endurance. Mm -hmm. What are the things historically for different populations that are the same uh, throughout history in the contemporary world that are similar in their experiences? And then what are the things that are uniquely defined by their context? You know, um, persecution in uh, Vietnam looks very different from persecution in um, China because it's historically and politically and culturally determined. Mm-hmm. So when all of those change, you know, you go over to India, things even look different from province to province. Mm-hmm. So persecution looks different from region to region because it's historically, politically, and culturally determined. So what happens in one country will look very different from uh, from another because you've got a totally different set of dynamics. But there are still commonalities to be seen because they're still following the same Christ uh, who j- does not change and who has promised to keep his people from Genesis to Revelation. I will be your God and you will be my people is a promise. And he fulfills that and he's fulfilling it even today. So um, we want to analyze those cases. We want to look at those situations. We already have students writing white papers around uh, human rights, the theological approach to human dignity, uh, theological approaches to um, assisting people in using the gospel to find, uh, to rediscover their dignity and assert their their dignity. Where are the lines between uh, your rights and giving up your rights? in terms of being the church is we just we're operating under according to a different kingdom yes so we have uh, a lot of students writing white papers uh, around human rights we have uh, students looking taking some of the principles and the frameworks that we're looking at we're working with a Cain and Abel dynamic with understanding where anti-christian hostility or hostility against the people of God actually originated. So we take it all the way back to the garden. And um, so we have people already applying frameworks to the physical body. We have people applying frameworks to digital technology. Mm. Uh, Just how do we understand how these things going on around us impact uh, the Christian life and make it challenging? And how do we use the tools that we've been given, the blessings that we've been given to overcome? Okay. So you're you're looking at various expressions historically, globally, of what you've called anti-Christian hostility, mm-hmm. seeing the contextual shape of those forms of hostility, but also looking at the underlying commonalities with a view towards equipping the contemporary church wherever she exists. Correct. To endure. Yes, yes. Yes. Which I think is something that's much needed. Um, as far as I know, um, and if, if there is another uh, institution, uh, educational institution doing this kind of spade work, let me know because I, I, want, to, I want to join forces. Uh, but I think that this is uh, uh, an area that's much needed. And um, we host public lectures where we can hear from people, both domestic and uh, international, where we can hear from people who are having these experiences. Uh, you know, there's people in in uh, rural areas, there's people in urban areas, gutted urban areas, who are having the first century church experience. Mm. Um, they're living under the New Testament reality. The players may have changed. It may not be the government that's against them. It may be the the gang dealers and the the or the big pharma, who's mm-hmm. you know in, who's not interested in people transforming under Christ. But there is a form of hostility there. So uh, we love talking to those folks. We host public lectures so that uh, the community can come and hear from them. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's we just kind of feel like we're sort of on the on the vanguard of uh, a new research area. Mm-hmm. In October of 2022, you were a speaker at the Litvin Symposium at Wheaton College's Billy Graham Center, the theme of which was contending for gospel mission in Christian leadership. And you were asked to address the question, are American Christians persecuted? You were also 
asked to talk about leadership development in a society that is increasingly dismissive and sometimes hostile toward Christianity, sticking with that question about persecution, how are American Christians prone to answer that question of whether American Christians are persecuted? And why do you think it's an important question for us to grapple with? Well, so let me start with the, the end of that first. I think it's important to grapple with it because we're a body. We are one. You know, one is uh, not a number in terms of Christianity. One is a state of being. And so uh, whether or not we would ever face legitimate violent persecution in our lives, and the Bible speaks about a range of persecution from, you know, rebuke to uh, open hostility to, you know, physical violence to martyrdom. Whether or not we would experience that in our life, in our personal lifetime, we actually are experiencing it because others in the body are experiencing it. So we want to try and reconnect those sinews by raising awareness more than just around people's personal stories. Hmm. This To the, the first part of that question, uh, I run into, <laughs> in the West, we want to help people think more uh, biblically about where we are culturally at the moment. Hmm. I run into three sets of people usually. There's persecution seekers who somehow think that it's, it's, there's some salvific element to being under persecution or some sort of revelatory, like, oh, if you're being persecuted, then you must really be a Christian. And that's actually not quite how it works. Even though the Lord did tell us, you know, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. If the world hated you, that you know, hated me, it will hate you too. But there's, we're not adding anything to our salvation, right? Mm-hmm. It's salvation by faith through grace. It's not salvation by works, right? Right. Okay. It's not salvation by works. So you've got these persecution seekers who somehow think that, you know, bring it on, you know, come on, let's, let's have it. And I'm like, well, that's not really biblical either. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other group is the persecution deniers. And they're sort of the ones who are uh, increasing anti-Christian hostility, but saying, I oh, ain't nobody hurting you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is all your fault. You know, <laughs> it's your fault you're getting hurt if you are getting hurt. You deserve this. Mm. Uh, look at all the all the evil that Christianity has done in the and and that's sort of like you know being in an abusive relationship you know it's, mm-hmm. it's always your fault right it's never something else right and uh, that's that's not quite truthful so what we want to do is encourage people to think about as a persecution realist mm. yes we have enjoyed more I call it the freer world we have enjoyed more freedom than most of most Christians for hundreds of years, collectively. However, what's happening today is different from what we experienced even 50 years ago, hmm. the freedoms that we have culturally speaking. Now, do we still have a constitution in America to which we can appeal for our rights? Absolutely. And that's a, that's a major distinction in my mind is that you still have the ability to sue for your rights and to say, um, I, God has given me the right to speak about him uh, for his purposes. We don't know why, but that, prop, that, that still exists. And that sort of distinguishes us from everybody else. But there is something culturally that has happened. There is something culturally where being an evangelical Christian in the purest sense of the word mm-hmm. is becoming a byword. Yes. And when you become a byword in your culture, you're beginning, I do believe that you're beginning to experience what the rest of the world is experiencing, what the rest of the world knows. In your lecture, you said, I have worked alongside a number of organizations who serve the church under pressure for 20 years. I generally do not talk about Americans as being under persecution in the sense that they experience persecution. And you've already used a a term of anti-Christian hostility, mm-hmm. what keeps you from using the harder term and using the softer term of anti-Christian hostility? It is because we do live in the freer world. So 360 to 370 million Christians globally live under some form of persecution. Mm-hmm. These are the folks, these are the countries that end up on the Open Doors World Watch List which is the top 50 countries where it's most difficult to be a Christian. Hmm. Uh, We're nowhere near being in the top 50. Mm -hmm. 
these folks are experiencing violence. Uh, they're experiencing um, cultural marginalization in terms of uh, they they're not they don't have economic opportunities. They don't have they have a particular place in society in their cultures. So the antagonism that that's towards them is identifiable, quantifiable by population. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not in there. Mm-hmm. That's not us. So all of these things matter in terms of claiming persecution. Mm-hmm. If you are being persecuted or targeted because of your faith in Christ is kind of the dividing line. Not because you were a jerk in the office mm-hmm. and, you know, you you were mean to everybody and, you know, and and you you're not and you got fired. Right. That's not persecution. You can't claim persecution on that. But if you were taking a stand for your principles and you were fired because of that and they, your principles are based on Christianity, that is legitimate. You are being targeted for your faith, for your belief. So it's kind of being able to draw those lines and and think more, be more, be a bit more thoughtful about what we call Christian persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we don't, if we don't show some care in how we use that word, then it really cheapens the experience of persecution of people who are literally fleeing their churches because they're being firebombed. Mm-hmm. Um, or concerned about, you know, their children being kidnapped by the hundreds and targeted for that reason. So, so there you, that's, that's why I, I, I always hesitate to use that word here. Right. There may come a day when I or my, my children or my grandchildren will say, we're on the watch list, mm-hmm. but we're not there yet. Right. Going back to the persecution seekers, something that came to my mind as, as I was listening to you, do you think in some cases it's not necessarily in all cases that people see some kind of salvific element to their persecution, if that's what they want to call it, but that it it serves in their minds some confirming element that this bears witness that my faith is real and true, and they might go out looking for it because in some way gives them a sense of security or validation yeah and validation yeah 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 no. yeah and that's that's that that brings me back to my question with the, the Wang Yi uh, lecture that we heard is it a blessing or a curse it is both and he mm-hmm. god does use persecution he does use it to purify the church he does use it to sanctify the believer he does use it to sift one of the fascinating things about your your talk was you shared what you hear from believers around the world who are experiencing persecution, what they have to say about their perception of whether or not American Christians are persecuted. What kinds of mm. what kind of responses have you gotten to that question? Well, keep in mind that um, you know, just want to be careful about the single story, the single narrative, mm-hmm. right? But I have heard from people more than anything, I've heard warnings of uh, along the lines of don't think it can't happen to you. Because there are some places that have uh, had some places globally that have had a reputation of, uh, you know, a Christian presence and, you know, maintaining and upholding Christian values. And they've seen their constitutions violated. They have seen public perception and winds shift quickly against them. There was one woman who who mentioned, uh, you know, she was she witnessed the uh, exodus out of um, Mosul and then the destruction of Damascus. And she said, you know, it's Damascus. It's the place where Paul walked. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't we thought it couldn't happen to us. She said, but 700 years of the church, seven or eight hundred years of the church messing around with, you know, its ethics and, you know, making compromised decisions that compromise the nature of the church. And she said, if you think that it can't happen to you, it can. It can happen mm. to us. The people who say it can't happen here always see it happen where they, where they are, <laughs> you know, and that's unfortunate because no. it's, um, it's, it's almost as if there are warning signs to say things are shifting. Um, mm-hmm. And you need to pay attention to these warning signs. You know, it's funny. The Lord gave all of those warnings in uh, in John 
uh, when he was talking to the disciples uh, before the night he was um, betrayed. And then there's all the warnings in uh, of, of of watching the times, you know, mm-hmm. watching, understanding the signs. And uh, it's funny that the disciples ask him, when are all these things going to come to pass? I've, I've heard um, Bern Poitras, who's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful uh, linguist and, and um, Greek scholar, say the word is rendered now. Hmm. Now. All of these things are coming to pass now. And, you know, we will always hear of wars and rumors of wars. So we're always in, <laughs> you know, we're always in these times where life is just phenomenally unstable, not just for the individual Christian, but for the people of God. Uh, it's it's our natural position. So it's 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 interesting to watch in some places how quickly things fall apart. Hmm. At one point in your lecture, you said, if we think that hostility toward faithful Christians cannot rise against the church in America, we do well to remember that it has already happened in America's mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. You've alluded to this uh, somewhat already, but could you expound on that further? So I'm drawing on my heritage as an African-American woman. I am a descendant of slavery, uh, of the slave trade, um, of uh, incredibly remarkable. (laughs) I tell you, my ancestors, I read their stories. My husband's like, well, you got like African-American royalty in your family. I'm like, I do. I really do. I mean, just the, the ways and the ways they pop up in the history books, how they got over is stunning. But I think back on the same anti-Christian principles and methods that were applied to the average slave coming up in, um, you know, 16, 17, particularly 1800s, as we work towards the Civil War, you know, there were, there were confiscations of Bibles. Mm-hmm. We see that in, uh, we see that in North Korea and China today. Uh, there were Bible redactions. Oh, we yes. see that around the world today, you know, the slave Bible. Mm-hmm. In the slave Bible, you have you know complete redactions of every anything re- re- regarding freedom. Well, you know China just it wants to remove uh, the first commandment so that there are only nine, which serves the uh, the, the the Communist Party. We see um, the threats of physical assault and violence, uh, people being burned at the stake, just like in Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's stories mm-hmm. of uh, pre- itinerant preachers being burned so that other slave plantations could see. Uh, his body being burned. This is what happens when you, you know, when you decide that you're not going to let the rocks cry out in your place and you're just going to keep preaching. So these are points of contact for understanding that, uh, well, you think about the the, the threat against uh, personal property, against um, physical property, like um, the church bombings in the, during mm-hmm. the civil rights movement. Why didn't they bomb clubs, nightclubs? Right. Uh, they bombed churches because it was the seat of the civil rights movement, the seat of planning and organization, hundreds of churches, not just not just 16th Street Baptist Church in, in Birmingham, but hundreds of mm-hmm. churches were firebombed during that period. So, And we see all of these things happening today. So uh, when I say that it's happened here before, that's really what I'm getting at, is um, there are populations within the American population, within the American Christian population, that mm-hmm. have endured... Um, hardship and hostility, anti-Christian hostility, and the violation of their religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Near the end of your lecture, you drew out principles from the New Testament that you said can help American Christians conquer cultural anxiety. Mm. First, can you explain what you have in mind by cultural anxiety? And after that, can you give us perhaps one of those principles? Right. So, you know, there are things that God has given us that are sustaining elements. Think about um, like the ordinary means of grace, mm-hmm. preaching of the word, the um, the sacraments, mm-hmm. baptism, the Lord's Supper, church discipline, and uh, and prayer. At times uh, throughout history, has been seen as a sacrament of its own. All of these things are not just they're not just rituals, and I, I think that. After this, after all this sifting that we're experiencing, and sort of this shaking up, these tectonic shifts that we've seen uh, in the in in evangelicalism in the last 10, 15 years, maybe twenty years, I feel like people are rediscovering these things. There's a huge movement out of Canada with a group called Prayer Current, and it's it's not just them. There are others too talking about a return to the concept of kingdom prayer. Kingdom-oriented prayer, like understanding what we're here for, you know, answering that question that the church has been wrestling with forever. What are we supposed to be doing while we're here? 
uh, and sort of returning to basics, pushing the reset button. Um, also focusing on the sacraments, there is an identity-bearing uh, um, element built into the sacraments. It reminds us as we participate in them and the strength that we draw from them, they remind us who we are. They remind us whose story we're following. There is one story under which Christ, then under which everybody's story is subsumed. And, you know, you're either following the way of Cain <laughs> and destruction, right? Or you're following uh, the way of uh, Abel and, and, and worship according to how God wants to be worshiped. And so, of course, you know, Christ is the fulfillment of that. And he gives us from his own hand, he feeds us the story on the night he was betrayed. He was, you know, this, this is my story. When I hear that, I should hear the shepherd's voice and say, I am called to be not a counterculture. I don't think counterculture is the right word, quite the right word. Hmm. We're called to be an other culture hmm. in the midst of a bunch of cultures that exist around us. Mm-hmm. We are called to be an other culture, an other political entity. And it's it's a politics that's based on something completely different than what we base politics on. It's politics based on the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. On, and the government is going to rest on his shoulders. So it reminds us, yes, that we have this dual identity, but all of these things remind us they're set up to quell our cultural anxiety and remind us that we are following a particular story that has a particular end, that no matter what is going to be kept, and we are going to move towards that, and it's going to be fulfilled. That's really, those are the only things, (laughs) preaching of the word, remembering who we are through the sacraments, uh, discipline. And saying, yeah. "Hey, you're not behaving like the other culture. Mm-hmm. You're you've stepped outside of those bounds. Come back, come back, yeah. come back." And you know, all of those things again hold forth that that um, living as that other culture and that other set of politics, it still holds out an indictment against the cultures around us, but it also holds out an invitation. Don't you want to be a part of this? Mm-hmm. And it's all done in community. I don't know if you've ever have you ever watched this movie called Mully. No, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, my gosh. That's your homework. <laughs> okay. That I will, is your I will homework. find it. <laughs> yeah, it's available on Amazon Prime. Mully. I have my student, Mully, M-U-L-L-Y. Okay. It's the story of Charles Mully, who grew up in Chibera slums, in, um, and he was an orphan. Actually, he made it to the slums. He was uh, orphaned in the rural areas. His family just left him. They abandoned hmm. him as a child, and he you know, made his way, walked from the rural area to Nairobi, um, and his story is phenomenal. But what he does, you're going to get to the end of the movie, you're going to be like, wow, how did we get here from where we started? <laughs> but what he does is he becomes, God burdens him. God gives him this, this crazy life path. And he, he becomes a believer in the process. And he becomes burdened for this system of orphans in this stuck in this uh, this system that is so broken and dependent on other broken systems that he um the only thing that he can do is set up a parallel system beside it an alternative mm. witness and it costs him everything mm. it costs his family everything but they start to um they start to build this parallel system next to the and so what it does is the system indicts the 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 system that's founded on life and Christ's principles and his identity in Christ starts to indict this system in the slums hmm. but it also invites these children these other children into into a life in Christ. You got to watch the movie. It's crazy. Okay, but the I will way watch it. there are other folks doing this same kind of high cost other cultural living. Now I'm not saying everybody has to go out and be Charles Mully and lay down everything, but but that's that the principle is there that when you live as the other cultural life producing other political reality instead of the one that's based on death and destruction, God is represented beautifully to the surrounding cultures. So anyways, go check it out. It's a great movie. Um, these are just some of the ways that, that quell our cultural anxiety. Mm. And, um, and, and we need that because when we get anxious, we, all t- we tense up and we can't move. We can't hear. 
Um, God doesn't want us to be anxious. He wants us to be concerned, but he doesn't want us to be anxious. To be anxious about the culture and what's happening around us is to presume that there is no solution. He is the solution. Hmm. And what strikes me about what you're saying is it's nothing novel. It's it's nothing um, gimmicky. Mm Mm-hmm. It is returning to the truths of Scripture and constantly reminding one another of whose story we're in, whose kingdom we belong to, and living accordingly. And one of the things that you said in your lecture that just really struck me is related to this. You said, false narratives that plague American evangelicalism cannot bear the weight of the rise of anti-Christian hostility. When we place our hope in temporal solutions, though they may be good tools, they become unstable and destructive when we make them into idols. Hmm. I stand by that. Yes, I I do too. (laughs) I stand by that. (laughs) Yeah, and anything that you make into an idol is going to destroy you. Uh, Idols, Idols are like... They're they're the crack of the world. I mean, they're they're just <laughs> they give you they that's they work on diminishing returns. Exactly. And they never deliver what they promise. Yes. And uh and good things can become idols. Yes. Yeah. Well, I told you I was wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit about Twitter. <laughs> um because I I remember you from Twitter. One of the things that I remember most is that you used that platform. To do everything we've been talking about, you were a constant source of news about what was going on in the world with respect to the suffering church. You were also one who was calling people to pray and to intercede for brothers and sisters around the world. And um, less substantive than that, you and I are two-thirds of a trio of friends who got into the custom of tagging each other when we came across interesting stories, and especially videos of remarkable advancements in robotics, usually (laughs) accompanied by some kind of dystopian humor and an occasional reference to Black Mirror. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But I, I remember the sad day you announced that you were departing that platform, and I've wanted to ask you, what led to that decision and what have the results been for you? That's so funny because those things are all connected, and I don't think that you <laughs> that you realize that. <laughs> so during the pandemic, I watched The Social Dilemma. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen that. I have. I watched The Social Dilemma. Then I started watching, I watched Coded Bias, which these are all documentaries about, uh, but done by the people who have created social media platforms and who've created um, things like facial recognition. Uh, They're beginning to point out some of the negative effects that they're having on um, global culture, Hmm. global online culture. Um, At the same time, I was attending some security briefings about you know, the security briefings where people were saying things that we now know that are now uh, public, that um, it's not our data that they're after. It's our psychology and our behavior. Hmm. I just decided I didn't want to be feeding into that system anymore, but I also didn't want that system feeding me. Mm-hmm. Bless my my little god granddaughter's heart. I can watch her watching a show Shows are so rapid pace now in terms of, you know, the images, how many images they show you per second. It's it, That's not even getting into the content, but I can just watch her watching. I see her little eyes just going back and forth, and I'm like, what is happening in your brain right now? Hmm. And so um, the more I just started reading uh, people like Tristan Harris, he's a social media ethicist uh, who was uh, instrumental in uh, the development of uh, a lot of the platforms that we know very well today. Uh, I started reading uh, Jaron uh, Lanier, I believe is his mm-hmm. name, uh, who gave you 10 reasons. Hey, this is the guy who developed social media. He's a futurist. He says 10 reasons why you should quit social media. These <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> probably people. So I, I just really started thinking about um, how maybe as much as we talk about how siloed we are as a culture and how bipolar we are now as a culture, um, and I mean um, the polarity of, mm-hmm. of, of worldviews, how much we've been manipulated into that. 
by the system and by bad actors uh, mm-hmm. who are exploiting the system. Yes. So I jumped ship. <laughs> yes, you did. If people want to follow your work at the Edmiston Center, learn about the opportunities that are available to them, read more about uh, the events that you're holding there, how can they do that? And would you also tell us about um, your writing at Underground Rising on Substack? Yeah, you can visit my Substack. Uh, I'd love to have you subscribe. I'm on a small writing hiatus right now. I've got a publishing project I'm finishing on a uh, commentary on the Book of Esther. And But once I finish that up, come see about us in May. I'm going to start uh, rolling out more articles on uh, thoughts on um, living under anti-Christian hostility. Uh, so you can check us out there at the Substack, but also Underground Rising is its name. But we'd love to have you come and visit us at um, the Edmiston Center at RTS Atlanta. We do host those public lectures, and um, anybody can come. You just have to RSVP in advance. We'll have our last one um, this April, and uh, after that, we'll take a break for the summer, and then we'll ramp them back up in the fall. We've had a great series this last year. I've really been pleased with the folks who've come through. So you can check out all of those uh, recorded lectures uh, at edmistoncenter.org and also at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. They have an archive of all of our lectures. So, And just come see about us. Come visit us. Come sit in on a class. You are welcome. We have a Christian view of human rights. We have theology and mission of prayer, which is a week-long intensive in the summertime. And we're all over the city um, engaging people in prayer and uh Praying for our city, learning how to pray kingdom prayers. Uh, we have our class, uh, Principles of Leadership, Daniel and Nehemiah. We're going to add Esther to that once I finish this commentary. So what is it like to be a minority and a superpower? Uh, we've got World Christianity and Perseverance, where we cover a lot of the things that we've been talking about today. And uh, yeah, all of those courses count towards any degree at RTS um, in the RTS system. So you can come and join us. We would love to have you. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, Karen, I am so grateful for you and the ministry that you have, the service that you are doing, the the local and the universal church, the heart that God has given you for his people and, and above all for him. And it has been a delight to finally get to actually talk to you. Yeah. So thank you for your time and, and for your ministry. I appreciate you too, brother. <laughs>